This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, May 27th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Scripture reading is from second chapter of Acts, beginning at uh, verse 42. And they, the followers of God, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Well, glad to... uh be here with you. Pastor Mark and I had the opportunity to go last weekend and fellowship with Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. It was for a training, and it was awesome, and it was a tremendous experience just to be with God's people in a different part of the country, seeing God working in those ways, but there's nothing better than just being with your home church. And so, so glad to be here with you. I'm going to pray, and we're going to get right into um, the book of Acts again. So if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the one who glorifies himself in all things, in all of creation. You have made all things good, and we, in our rebellion, have made all things bad. Even before that happened, Lord, though you declared that it was not good for man to be alone. And your word further declares that whoever isolates himself seeks his own desires, not yours. And he breaks out against all wisdom. Father, you have rescued us from our sin. You have rescued us from your deserve, our deserved wrath from you. You have rescued us from certain death. And you have saved us not only to yourself, but to one another. And by your Spirit, you have called us out of the world and transferred us into your kingdom, adopted us into your family, and gathered us here as your church in this place. And this is a gift. So forgive us, Father, if we don't often view this gathering this way if we wrongly view it as inconvenient, as we view it perhaps as a speed bump onto more important things. Father, this is your day, and this is your people in this place. So I pray, Father, that we will believe what the Scriptures say, that this gathering is where your presence resides, that this gathering is where we grow up in maturity to Christ. This is where we hear your word. This is where we're built up in love. This is where your wisdom is fully displayed. 
Father, help us, change us, heal us. May we learn to love You and to love one another. King Jesus, may we learn to love You and the church that You died for. And Holy Spirit, would You pull us out of our lukewarm, individualized faith and make us alive together in Christ and for Christ as You did with the first believers. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So we are going straight through the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 2 at the end of it. We will spend many weeks doing this, and we have spent the last couple weeks examining the days that followed the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And as promised, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, the presence of God falls upon His disciples in the form of the Holy Spirit. And they are immediately filled and empowered to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, which provides a very nice outline for the book of Acts, which begins in Jerusalem and really ends on the way to Rome. And Acts chapter 2 starts with this incredible, miraculous moment as the Spirit falls and they're filled with tongues. It is a very clear reversal of the curse that happened at the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis when men were divided because they were devoted to their own truth. And now by His Spirit, after thousands of years, God unifies. He brings His one people together devoted to the one truth, namely the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We will say the Gospel often. Quite simply, it is the good news of the mighty work that God has done through Jesus Christ to save sinners. And so these people are hearing this and seeing these guys in all these languages declare the mighty works of God. And so much so, it starts in the house and they most likely move out to the streets and the commotion gathers a huge crowd. And like some kind of street evangelist, Peter preaches his first sermon and he's explaining what happened to Jesus 50 days ago and then what is happening by the Spirit of Jesus in this moment. Last week, Andrew explained that sermon, and in summary, this is what his sermon basically said. Peter's sermon, not Andrew's. Peter declared that Jesus had been delivered up according to the plan of God, that He had been killed by the hands of lawless men, but that God had raised Jesus from the dead and exalted Him at His right hand and made Him King and Lord of all. The Holy Spirit that they were observing happening in terms of falling upon these men, he said the Holy Spirit has now been poured out to declare salvation, calling everyone to repent and to believe in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. His sermon is simple. One that might not really impress the consumer-hungry congregations of today. There are no jokes There are no funny illustrations. There are no elaborate explanations. There's a lot of Bible and a lot of Jesus. It was simple, but it was powerful because 3,000 souls believe and are baptized and the first 3,000 person megachurch is born in Jerusalem in one sermon. Simple, powerful, truthful. The church 
church. And what's the church? The church is the assembly, the gathering of those God has called out of the world. And it's important for us to understand that the church is not God's plan B. It's not like prior to the book of Acts, throughout the history of the Old Testament, it's like, well, here's plan A, let's change it. This was God's plan from the very beginning, dare I say, before the beginning. This is why you cannot love Jesus and not love the church. Because you cannot separate Jesus from His church. The Scriptures are so clear if you read looking for what what does the Bible say about the church? Well, it says that the church is what Jesus came to build. It says the church is what Jesus bled and died for. It says the church is what Jesus loves. The church is what Jesus leads. Jesus loves the church. The gathering of His people. Now Paul told the Romans in the beginning of his letter to Rome that the Gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. And we know, because we've been reading Acts chapter 2, that those who believe were baptized. And while theologians talk about this invisible church of God, which is a thing, right? It's the great assembly of Christians across all nations and all generations. Most often when the Bible is speaking about the church, it is nearly always talking about local assemblies of baptized believers. Now the Gospel of Jesus then, we see, is the thing as it's proclaimed by Peter that produces the church. It upholds the church. It promotes the church as God's divine display of His glory. But we don't really view the church that way, I don't think. Before we tackle this passage, which is the most just beautiful passage, I think, about the church in the book of Acts, perhaps in the New Testament, it's important to understand how we approach maybe different kinds of text in the Bible, especially in the book of Acts. We need to consider the differences between prescriptive and descriptive passages in the Bible. Prescriptive, P-R-E, and descriptive, D-E, passages in the Bible. Now, prescriptive texts are instructive texts. And these kinds of texts typically include very explicit commands of what to do or what not to do. Certain behaviors are prescribed, right? Like the Ten Commandments. Shall have no other gods before me. Do not commit adultery. Those types of things. And we see the same in the New Testament, right? Love one another. Serve one another. Forgive your enemies. So they're very explicit, prescribed commands of things to do or not to. But we have to be careful not to confusing these with descriptive texts. Descriptive texts are those that simply describe what is happening without really giving a direct command or instructing us on how to behave. It's important not to get these two confused. Just because something is descriptive, descriptive, does not mean it's actually prescriptive that we ought to do the exact same thing. At the same time, 
There's a ton to learn from these descriptive passages of Scripture that are inspired by God, the very words of God. And in many ways, the entire book of Acts is largely descriptive in that it describes how the first disciples understood Jesus' command to make disciples. So Jesus gives this commission. Okay, how did that's a very prescriptive text. Go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teach them to obey everything I command. Okay, that's prescriptive. We're supposed to do something. Acts describes how they understood that. It also describes how the first converts, the first disciples that believed as a result of obedience to that command, how they understood what it meant to be the church. What we have here in Acts chapter 2, 42-47 is something very unique. It's the first response of the first believers. And because Luke, the guy who's writing the text, was not an eyewitness to these things, so he didn't see, at least he doesn't say that he saw, the falling of the Holy Spirit. He didn't see the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. He is getting his information from other eyewitnesses. And it's intriguing as, as he think about him seeking out witnesses, seeking out people, tell me what those first days were like it's interesting to consider the things that they actually describe. This is the first thing that they describe. This moment. In other words, we see in this moment what the first Christians did first. We read that the first people who repented, the first who believed, the first who were filled with the Holy Spirit, the first who were baptized gathered together. Their baptism wasn't just a getting wet for Jesus, right? I would argue it wasn't even only identification with the death of Jesus as you go down into the water and the resurrection of Jesus as you come out of the water. It wasn't only that. What we see, because we see the first Christians repenting, believing, and being baptized... It was actually an initiation into the visible church of God. It was into the local gospel community that they were baptized. They were part of a people. Now the first thing that characterizes community is something that's very difficult for us in the Northwest. They were together a lot. And I say difficult because we have like, um, and if this is not descriptive of you, Maybe you weren't born and raised here. Maybe just an anomaly. I don't know. But if you go to the south, if you go to different parts of the country, you realize that getting together and spending time together in community uh, is not a foreign thing. For us, we like our individual spaces. But God's people were together a lot. And it's interesting that most people today view the gathering of the church as an event. An event to experience, not a family to gather with. Not people that you want to see and spend time with. An event to perhaps check off or just attend. We show up, many of us, waiting for the musicians to perform. Waiting for the preachers to perform. Failing to recognize that the church is not the leaders responsible to perform 
or provide a service. The church is its people gathering to live out its responsibilities to care for one another. Now, the text here gives us a description of the kinds of things that characterized that community when they were together. So they're together, they're gathering, and it shows us what they do. In verse 42, it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So we'll just break that down a little bit. First thing they did was they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, what does that mean? Well, because we have the Great Commission at the end of Matthew and the end of Mark, we know that Jesus instructed His disciples to go make disciples and to teach them all that He had commanded. We also know that prior to His ascension to the throne, the right hand of God, we know that Jesus spent 40 days on earth between His resurrection and His ascension teaching His disciples that all the Scriptures, which would be the Old Testament, pointed to Him. So, Logic tells us that the church was devoted to teaching the Bible. What Jesus had commanded and what was written in Scripture that was about Jesus. So first, they were devoted to what the disciples taught from the Old Testament, having been taught by Jesus. In time, these same disciples, the church, became devoted to what the apostles taught and wrote, which became our New Testament. And these were letters and gospels, some letters to churches, some letters to individuals that would be circulated and read throughout the church and became the teaching of the apostles that was shared among the churches. And so beginning here, we see that they are devoted to Scripture, devoted to the Bible, that the churches were getting together constantly and continually to read and study and hear and be taught the Bible. It's troubling to consider that there are many churches today, gatherings that would identify themselves as churches that will gather even in the name of Jesus and not open the Bible today. That's not unusual, but it's a tragedy and it lacks any power to change anything. The Bible, the Word of God, is what ought be the center of our church. It should be the center of what we teach, the center of what we sing, the center of what we pray, the center of what we talk about. Our church must be shaped by the Word of God. Now think about this. These are the first Christians that were first filled by the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit drive them to first His Word. The very thing that Jesus said would happen, right? I will send you the Helper and He will teach you everything that I have commanded you. So, as we are saved by Jesus, as we are filled with the Spirit, our hunger for the Word of God ignites. That's not a command, right? Ignite for the Word of God. It is what happens when the Spirit fills and your disposition towards Jesus and your disposition towards His Word 
changes. All too often, we wrongly separate the Spirit of God and the Word of God. All too often, especially in the spiritualized Northwest, we talk about the spirits are telling us, and the Spirit is leading us, and the Spirit is calling us. We baptize everything in the Spirit apart from the Word of God. We need to understand that the Spirit does not work apart from the Word of God. They work in unison. They work in conjunction. Dare I say, God acts and speaks through His Word by His Spirit. And so they're devoted to the teaching of the apostles. They also say they're devoted to the fellowship, right? The, the study of the Bible gave shape to their community. They weren't just getting together to hang out. Their fellowship had a particular purpose. It had a particular kind of teaching, so it had a particular kind of community. They weren't just drawn together as God's people because they had the same life experience or they shared the same preferences or loved the same causes or even had the same needs. You know, the amazing thing about the church is a community unlike any other. The reality is, many of us, let's just be honest, we may not know each other or be friends if not for the gospel. Because most communities are built on affinity. Well, we're very different. Many of us have different experiences, different preferences, different likes, dislikes, different opinions, different gifts, different lots of things. But what brings us together is we are all the same Savior saved from the saved sin. This is not a natural community. It's a supernatural one. They knew that they were fellow citizens part of a different kingdom that was not of the world. And they were in partnership together to seek to help each other live according to God's Word together. Did you know that's why we gather? So we can help one another live in accord with God's Word. Believing that it is the truth that leads to joy. That obedience and joy actually go together. And we actually need that reminder. We need that encouragement. We need that stirring. This is why Hebrews 10 is such an important passage. Verse 24 says, let us consider, let us, let us think about how we can stir up one another to love and good works. How can we do this? How can we stir one another? How can I encourage you to remember Jesus in your failings and remember Jesus in your successes? How can I remind you to forgive those who hurt you? To not let a root of bitterness dig into you. How can I remind you to love one another, to sacrifice one another, to confess your sins, to, to remember that if you confess your sins, He's faithful to forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How can we do that? Verse 25 comes right after that. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near, the last day. This is a gospel community shaped by gospel doctrine designed to help people align their lives with the gospel. This community of the church was not gathered 
because they had preferences that were the same. It wasn't shaped by the ever-changing preferences of people. It wasn't shaped and, and created because of the natural attraction or affinity of similar hobbies or things or personalities. It wasn't created because of the wisdom of the world, but by the Word of God. And it says they were also devoted to the breaking of bread, which is much more than just eating together, though I'm pretty convinced they did that often. It likely refers to the sharing of the Lord's Supper, which again was probably much more elaborate than these small little chunks of whatever we have up here with the wine and the juice. But it was a celebration of the Lord's Supper, a celebration of the Passover, of the new covenant that Jesus instituted before he was arrested and betrayed and crucified. And participation in the Lord's Supper is, in many ways, the renewal of our baptism. And this is important. Like, why would they do this? Why would they get together and, and do this? Well, it's important to remember that this meal commemorated many things. And as they participated in this taking of the bread and of the wine that represented the body of Jesus broken for them and the blood shed for them, reminded them that they were sinners of the worst kind that required the death of the Son of God to cover their sin and yet so loved that the Son of God came and died for them, there was the reminder that they were sons and daughters of the King. That your identity was not on what you have done or have not done, achieved or not achieved, educated or not, good looking or not, skilled, unskilled. That's not where your identity lies. That your identity lies in the person and work of Jesus Christ who says, you're mine. You're a son and daughter of the King. But that's not all it was about because it was a shared meal. They shared the meal together. And as we come up, we're at separate tables, but we are coming up together to share the same bread and the same wine because we also need to remind ourselves that we are not just sons and daughters of the kings, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Communion is a spiritual reminder of our new life in Christ. And it's a reminder of our renewed life, which I need to be reminded of. I need to be reminded that Jesus planned for my failure. I need to be reminded that He says, yes, confess your sins I already know of, and I will cleanse you from unrighteousness. Don't live in shame. Don't live in guilt. Live in the freedom knowing that I love you and let that change you. But I also need to remind that it's an eternal life. That this meal represents a future meal. But in this context, more than anything, it's a shared life. That as brothers and sisters, you come up forward, you should be aware of who's coming with you. Because these are the people that God has put into your life that He said, you are to care for and they are to care for you. We share an identity that is not just about our personal relationship with Jesus, but we have a shared relationship with Jesus. And the regular sharing of communion set this community apart. I mean, the reality is, where else do you do this? You're not getting together your 4-H club and going, hey, before we get on the horses, guys, let's go and break some bread and, and share. Maybe you have some Domino's pizzas about the close you'll get to it. But here we do something unique, right? The church gathers to do something unique, to participate in the blood and the body 
gospel in the most tangible of ways. Communion set this community apart and participation was a confession to God and a confession to myself, but a confession to one another and in many ways, a confession to the world. Fourthly, they're devoted to the prayers. And the text says the prayers, which is more than likely referring to a lot of the Jewish models of prayer that the disciples would have been very familiar with. The early church, remember, was largely comprised of Jewish converts for many of the early years. And so much of the community and the the practices that they had were also shaped by that Jewish heritage. And so oftentimes, the prayers of the Psalms, the songs of the Psalms, particularly Psalm 113 to 118, these were Psalms that were recited during the Jewish festival of Passover, which had happened 50 days prior to this. And they were the same Psalms that they would sing during the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost. And likely, these are the same songs that Jesus sang with His disciples on the night that He was betrayed and arrested. Did you know Jesus was singing? He was likely singing Psalm 113 to 118, which would have been very familiar to them. And if you read these Psalms, especially in the context of imagining Jesus, knowing He's about to be betrayed, knowing He's about to be arrested, knowing He's about to be crucified, these Psalms are Psalms of praise. Praise for God's greatness. Praise for His steadfast love. Praise for His faithfulness. And I found it noteworthy that in Psalm 116, that particular psalm focuses on the songwriter's desire to distinguish himself from all the liars in the world who pretend to rely on God. And he wants to express his reliance upon God for his life. And it says that he desires more than anything in Psalm 116 to publicly declare his faith while he is in the presence of God's people, affirming the Lord as the source of all things. And so what did they do? They gathered together. They committed themselves and devoted themselves to the teaching. They devoted themselves to to breaking bread and taking the Lord's suppers. And they sang. They sang the Word of God. And as they committed themselves to gathering and teaching the Word of God and partaking the Lord's Supper and praising and praying the Word of God among one another, what does it say happened? Awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The people were not changed because of clever sermons. They weren't changed because of exciting programs or fantastic music or beautiful buildings. They had none of those things. All they had was the Word of God coming out of the mouths of the people of God. And as they heard and believed and obeyed God's Word, miracles happened. And we think about miracles and we usually think of the most fantastic things possible. And that Certainly happened, right? As Jesus was healing and doing amazing things, He did tell His disciples that greater works than these you will see. Greater works than these you will do. So I'm certain that physical healings and the things that we would naturally go, oh, that's a miracle, would occur. 
But more frequently, I imagine, the miracles and the awe that they experienced were some supernatural miracles that we often dismiss as natural ones. I'm thinking of things like conversions. Never for a second, for those who claim the name of Christ, forget that your faith in Christ is a miracle. Every single story, no matter how colorful or lack thereof, is a miracle. If you have turned from the story of Jesus being a story of a foolish, tragic man to the story of the truth of God revealing His wisdom and His salvation and His truth, that's a miracle. I think of miracles that I watch happen in the life of Christ. The restorations of marriages. I've seen men and women restored to love. I've seen families healed. I've seen addictions, freedom. Those are the kinds of miracles that are powerful. The transformed hearts. The transformed lives. Certainly, healings and things like that happen and are beautiful and awesome, but in terms of what we most frequently see and ignore, God bringing life to where there was death, hope to where there was hopelessness, freedom to where there was slavery. That should produce awe in us. And as I said, Pastor Mark and I got to go to Capitol Hill Baptist Church and they have an evening service, and at that evening service they had testimonies. And there was a young woman that was asked to speak and she shared her testimony as one who was actually leaving the church. She was moving and she had come to Capitol Hill Baptist. I believe she worked for a senator or something of that nature. And she was a very strong woman. She was a young woman. I can say that now because I'm 44 and I realize I am not that young anymore, though I'm certainly younger than some. But when I was with the 30 lead pastors there, I was seventh, seventh oldest. And I was like, we were getting in line. I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely probably younger than you. I'm like, no, no. And it was really disheartening. So she was a young lady. She was probably in her late 20s. She was a young lady. But she got up and she shared the story as she was about to leave because she wanted just the church to be blessed by her testimony and what it had it done in her life. She was an uber, hyper, super feminist before she came to CHBC. She talked about how she hated men and she hated God. She talked about how she thought marriage was a joke and women who were married were weak. And then she talked about what she saw in the people of God and how Jesus had softened her heart. And as she saw men honoring God by loving their husbands and women honoring God by respecting their husbands, just watching the life of the church and be affected by the Word of God, she was transformed and she at some point must have repented because she was just sharing her story of transformation. That's a miracle and a beautiful one to hear those stories. And there are stories like that in our church in different ways and though we don't publicly say them yet and share every single one, many of us know them and they're amazing and evidence to God's power in our midst. The fifth thing that says that they were devoted to loving and serving one another, it says, and all who believe, so these aren't just gatherings of anybody, 
These are the believers. They were together and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And we think to ourselves, that's great for someone else. Do you understand the level of sacrifice and commitment these, had, these people had to one another? This is not a prescription for communism. Quite simply, it's a picture into the hearts of God's people and how they understood their relationship to one another. Something had changed. They had gone from being strangers and aliens to being citizens of the kingdom of God and brothers and sisters in the same family. And remember, none of these things were prescribed explicitly by Jesus or Peter in his sermon. So what you're seeing is the Spirit doing something in the hearts of the people that are saved. And many people wonder, am I a Christian? Do I have the Spirit of God in me? And I always say, like, there's a couple things that you should probably evaluate. Particularly, first is your disposition towards Jesus. Is He a fool or is He Lord? Is He a tragic hero? Is He Savior who died for your sins willingly? And what's your disposition towards God's Word? Are they the words of a good father who wants your best? And like Jesus says, I tell you these things so your joy will be made full? Or is it just, ah, oh, that's a good moral code to listen to every now and then in addition to the other stuff I listen to? And what is your disposition towards God's people? That's one we don't often talk about. I mean, I love Jesus. The Bible's great, but the church... Eh. This is not a prescription of what you ought to do. It's a description of what the Spirit of God does in us. This is Spirit-led. They were not merely identifying as the people who went to the same church. They were taking responsibility, tangible responsibility to care for each other, which means they were close enough not only to know each other's names, but also each other's needs. And we consider like, well, the church is too big to do that. I've had people leave in the last few months and the number one reason that one particular couple left was the church is too big. And for a second, you're, you're considering like, okay, that's possible. It's not 20 people. It's easy to know 20 people and know their needs. 3,000. That's how many are here. So if we had 3,001, maybe there's an argument. But we don't have 3,000. And somehow they're able to know each other. Certainly they didn't know every single person at 3,000, but there were people in the community that they knew and knew them. So much so that they were willing to love them in tangible ways that were costly. To pool their money and their property. To sacrifice their comfort to ensure that no one went without. And that happens in this church often. People sacrificing for one another, helping each other in the greatest needs, whether it's money or other needs. It's beautiful, it's amazing, and if you don't know about it, you should get close enough to learn about it. God has done a great work in the church and the hearts of the people here to love one another. He can always do more, and we pray that He does. But y'all love each other. It's awesome. 
And I pray it will continue. But the gospel changed their relationship with God and it changed their relationship to one another. And we saw that because it changed the relationship to their stuff. Last couple, it says that they were devoted to gathering for worship together, right? Day by day, they were attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Day by day meant day by day. A lot of days, many days, frequent days, constantly, continually gathering to worship publicly and to worship privately. They gathered together at temple. They gathered together in homes. They were joyful together. They were generous together. They even became popular together. If nothing else, here's what we do know. They didn't dread getting together. Now think about that. God's people filled with God's Spirit didn't dread getting together. It was something they looked forward to. It was not inconvenient. It was something that they organized their lives around. It was a people, not just an event. A people to be with, to rejoice with, to gather with. And I dare say that they struggled when they couldn't gather. I'm not sure that describes our culture today in terms of the church. That's why many people talk about, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Christian does, you know, church doesn't make you a Christian. Certainly doesn't. But the gathering of God's people is part of our identity about being a Christian. Finally, they're devoted to evangelism, but it's probably better to say that Jesus was devoted to evangelism through them. The most effective strategy that they had was not making sure they had a big sign up at Clyde's and was in the parade was faithfulness to teach the Bible, pray the Bible, obey the Bible so that others might see the Bible. It was quite simple, actually. And as they did this, it says, the last verse, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And as a church planner, I can't tell you how many books and trainings and blogs that I've been sent and given and taught about strategies to grow the church. And I will tell you that none of those are necessarily included. They're much more worldly in what you ought to do. But what I found through all those things is that far too many people are interested in growing attendees than they are in actually making disciples. And there are many ways to grow attendees and increase the size of your church. And I have nothing, no interest in any of those. Our hope here is to preach God's Word, to sing God's Word, to pray God's Word, to apply God's Word, obey God's Word, and through that see people saved and restored to relationship with God and relationship with one another. And if that's 10 people, amen. If that's 1,000 people, amen. We'll be doing the same thing every time. Now, let me just bring this to a close because as I preached last week, a couple weeks ago I should say, in the beginning of Acts 2, that there was something bigger happening here. We read this and we often kind of read by it and and get on to better things, but if we just stop for a second, today I, I fear that the gathering of the church, even for us, for those who are here and certainly for those who are elsewhere, 
The gathering of the church on Sunday morning, being together, has been regulated to some kind of optional, insignificant weekend event. And because there are so many competing events, we're a busy people. Because there are so many competing events that appeal to our flesh so much more powerfully, we often neglect this. It's no wonder that the writer of Hebrews actually acts, has to warn us not to neglect gathering as the church. And that was the early church he was writing to. And it's because we misunderstand what's happening here. And then there are those who go, that's right. I, I want to recapture the experience of the early Christians. I want the Acts 2 church. You ever heard that phrase before? There's whole networks created called Acts 2 networks. In fact, did you know that there are over 67 million Google searches last year for Acts 2 church? The strange thing is when those searching find that it's less about building a Christian utopia and more about good old-fashioned simple obedience to the Bible, they're much less interested. They too misunderstand what's happening here. What is happening here is something God's been doing since the book of Genesis. In fact, it's the purpose of all creation and the chief end of man, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And when we talk about glorifying God, what we're really talking about is magnifying God's greatness, revealing, displaying, showing what God is like. And that starts with His creation. Good to see you back, Michelle. Michelle was on the trails, and she was exposed to God's creation. She puts awesome pictures out to see how beautiful and amazing it was, right? And it displays God's glory. In fact, that's what the psalm says. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare my awesomeness without even saying a word. And the climax of that creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 was what? Mankind. And man uniquely, because he was made in the image of God, was designed to display God's glory and awesomeness in a way that nothing else could. And yet what happened? Men fell. And they rebelled and they shattered that image. It wasn't lost completely, but it was marred. But God had a plan to restore that image through His Son Jesus and it would come through this nation Israel. Okay, I'm going to pick this nation, these people out of all people. And He even tells them in Isaiah 42 that I created you for my glory. I'm going to separate this people. I'm going to dwell with this people. I'm going to love these people so that my mercy and grace and goodness and forgiveness will be displayed. And we know how well Israel did in displaying God's glory. They too rebelled. And yet God knew they would and planned for their failure. And that's why the image of God and the person of Jesus Christ Himself came. God Himself arrived. And He came to build His church to display the restored glory that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The church is now called 
to image God, to display God. The church is built by Jesus to display the character and glory of God to all the universe, testifying in word and deed to His amazing wisdom and awesome salvation. Let me prove it to you. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says this, of this gospel, which is the person, the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ to save sinners, he says, the gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And what was that plan? So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And then he says at the very end of the same chapter in verse 20, Now to him, praising God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, which is the Spirit of God, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The gathering of the church is more than just an event. It is the means through which God intends to display His greatness in this world. We, the church, are charged with fulfilling God's mission to glorify Himself. And we see how the first believers understood that took place. The church even more than the individual Christian, is our first and best witness to the world. The witness of the church being the church is more powerful than any words that might be spoken by one individual. We give the world a picture of God living as the church. We image God's glory. We live according to God's Word. We display God's glory when we use the life of the church to accomplish His purposes. We display His wise and holy and loving image for the world to see. Life together, as we've seen described, preaches Jesus. And so we must not only just learn to love, we actually must commit to love. The world sees Jesus' radical commitment to us. And what kind of radical commitment? He saves sinners. Men and women who do not deserve anything but death, He saves and He restores and He adopts and He blesses. This radical commitment of Jesus, His commitment to us, is seen when Jesus' people radically commit to one another. And the commitment that's described here is pretty radical. But there's nothing more powerful than the church of God living out the gospel because through the church, we see Jesus' mercy. Through the church, we see Jesus' grace. Through the church, as we are loving one another in both just affection and discipline and everything that is included in love, we see God's glory. 
Through the church we see Jesus' sacrifice. Through the church we see Jesus' service. Through the church we see Jesus' joy because in the church we see that. Or ought to. We see Jesus' people forgiving one another in ways that like, why would you forgive like that? Because Christ has forgiven me. They should see a picture of forgiveness that blows their mind. Through the church we see Jesus because in the church we see Jesus' people forgiving one another and blessing one another in the most radically generous ways that doesn't make sense to the world. In the church, we see people disciplining one another out of love, admonishing one another, calling each other back to faithfulness. In the church, we see sacrifice for one another, service to one another, rejoicing with one another, getting dirty with one another, entering to one another's brokenness as Jesus entered into ours. We see all this about Jesus through the church, only when we see it in the church. And that's what God calls us to by His Spirit. So if you don't know Jesus, this word is for you in this sense. He stands ready to save you and give you new life and give you new identity. He stands and ready to save anyone who will repent, who will turn from their sin. It only leads to death that only leads to misery, even if it's given you a temporary little thrill, it will never satisfy and it cannot save you from your deepest guilt and shame. If you'll turn from your sin and believe, and Jesus will give you new life. But here's a word for those who say they know Jesus. And that's many of us here. I know Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm a son and daughter of the King. You need to know that Jesus didn't just save you to himself. He saved you to his people. That's part of your identity. And I argue for those of us who struggle with lukewarm Christianity, that your nominal Christianity is most clearly seen in your apathy towards God's word and towards God's people. And so pray that God changes that. Ask God to give you the deepest affection for God's people. Ask God to reveal to you that the church and what He has planned for is the place where you grow, is the place where you mature, is the place where you experience blessing. And never forget that as much love as you have for your spouse, that's awesome. For you to love your husband or love your wife or love your kids, that is a beautiful witness to the love of Jesus. But I would argue it's a scotch less powerful than the witness of the love you have for your church. That is the first and best witness we have. It is the most powerful witness we have. If that is not how you feel about the church, I pray that you will pray to God to have Him change your disposition just as He changed it towards Him and His Word and even your sin, that He would change it towards the church. And that as you come this morning to communion, you have a different experience as you see people differently. Let's pray.